What is Mabo and why is it so significant? These are the questions that we'll be dealing with this week in environmental administration and planning. The case we'll be looking at the, the most is Mabo number two. And that's a High Court case that is related to the island of Mur in the Torres Strait. Now this island is also known as Murray Island. It's roughly midway between Cape York and Papua New Guinea. There's a map in the slides where you can see in a bit more detail what I'm talking about there. This island is part of the territory of Queensland. Now, in particular, we're talking about the case Marbo number two. And I'm going to deal with that as a bit of an overview first before coming back to the question, well, if there is Marbo number two, what about Marbo number one? So Marbo number two is more formally known as Marbo versus Queensland number two. It's a High Court of Australia case from 1992 and you'll see the citation in the slides. You'll also see on the slides with that citation a reference to 1992-175-CLR1. Now what that means is it's a reference to a law report where this case has been written up. So 1992 is the date. CLR refers to the Commonwealth Law Reports. 175 is the volume number and 1 is the page number. So if you were looking for the case Marbo versus Queensland number 2, you could find it in volume 175 of the Commonwealth Law Reports, starting on page 1. However, remember we can find it also on the Ostley website, and that's the link that you see on your slide, where you can access the case, read through it, and download it for free. So what was Marbo number 2 all about? Well, this was a case where the indigenous people of Murr Island, the Merriam people, wanted acknowledgement that their land was theirs. They wanted to be acknowledged as the owners, as the possessors, as the occupiers, who were entitled to use and enjoy their land. Essentially, what they were seeking was a declaration that their title to land could be conceptualised in the context of the British-based common law legal system. So just to recap on that again, the Merriam people had a notion that they had land rights to their land on Murr Island. And what they were seeking to do were to have those rights recognised within 
the contemporary Australian legal system. They contended that the islands are not and never have been crown land under Queensland legislation. And that the Queensland legislation, in particular, the Queensland Coasts Declaratory Act of 1985, which had been enacted to specifically remove land rights from the Mur Island people and that all of the land belonged to Queensland. So the, the, the Merriam people were claiming that that legislation, the Queensland Coast Declaratory Act of 1985, was unconstitutional. Why were they claiming that? Well, the claim was that the act was racially discriminating against the Miriam people by being specifically enacted to take away their land rights rather than being a generally applicable law for the whole of Queensland. Now, if you think back to last week, you recall the conflict that we saw between Tasmania and the Commonwealth over the validity of law. And this is a similar situation here. And this is uh, the issue that we have, which is Marbo number one. That is, there's a conflict between the Queensland Coast Declaratory Act of 1985 and the Racial Discrimination Act, which is Commonwealth legislation from 1975. Now remember what happens when there's a conflict between two laws, one at the Commonwealth level and one at the state level. Recall section 109 of the Australian Constitution. And that's where we find that in the event of an inconsistency, the Commonwealth law will prevail. So this is essentially what happened in Marbo number one. This was the, the case, the precursor to number two. It was the case that dealt with this question about whether or not the Queensland Coasts Declaratory Act of 1985 was inconsistent with the Racial Discrimination Act of 1975. Now, in, in Marbo number one, that Queensland Act could only be inconsistent with the Commonwealth legislation if the Miriam people actually held rights in the land that the Queensland Act was trying to take away from them in particular. And in that sense, it was discriminating against them. So we're dealing with land use rights that had pre-existed and survived European colonisation but we're dealing also with the issue that historically the legal position that had been adopted by the British colonisers was that Australia was terra nullius, the land of no one. And that enabled the British to claim sovereignty. Just as an aside, in colonial times, there were three main mechanisms for claiming sovereignty. The first was by conquest, 
So you could invade and fight and claim the land as your own. The second was by treaty. So you could come to some sort of agreement with the owners of the land that you would take over sovereignty. And that's what happened in New Zealand, for example, with the Treaty of Waitangi. The third way, which is what happened in Australia, is that the land is declared as terra nullius or land of no one. And then the law will recognise that it's free to take. And that's what happened with the British in Australia. And these are questions that are raised within the Marbo case in particular with Marbo number two. So in Marbo number one, that terra nullius question was set aside. The High Court instead focused on the racial discrimination question ultimately finding that the act was discriminatory and therefore invalid. Now in Marbo number two, having now um, ascertained in Marbo number one that the Queensland legislation was invalid, Marbo number two was able to take up the terra nullius question and deal with this issue of whether the land rights of the Merriam people existed as they claimed. So why is Marbo number two famous? Well, essentially it's famous because the result of the case was that there was a new form of title to land that was recognised under Australian law, which predated and survived colonisation under particular circumstances. And that's what we're going to look into in a little bit more detail in this episode. So just to recap, we're talking about Marbo number two, and we're really interested here in the new form of title, that is native title, that was recognised under Australian common law as a type of land ownership which predated and had survived colonisation under particular circumstances. Let's just take a moment to consider terra nullius and the issue of precedent. Remember last week again in TAS Dams we talked about this notion of precedent as being important to courts in deciding cases, that they need to draw on previous cases as a way of providing some sort of predictability. However, we raise the important point that precedent is not followed if it's not worth following. In relation to terra nullius, we have a comment from Justice Murphy in a case called Coe versus the Commonwealth from 1979. Now, Justice Murphy identifies in that case that terra nullius is a convenient falsehood to justify the taking of land. 
And that is a comment that was taken up as a, uh, as a basis, as a precedent basis for Mabo and some of the reasoning that the High Court Justices made in their decision. So the main arguments in Mabo number two, what are we dealing with here? Well, Queensland was arguing that the annexation of the Murray Islands had occurred in 1879 and that this had granted the Crown absolute ownership, legal possession and exclusive power to convert title to all land in the Murray Islands. Because of this, Queensland was arguing that no rights had existed before, relying on the notion of terra nullius. On the other hand, the Merriam people had agreed that their land had been settled under colonisation and they weren't challenging that but they were challenging that their land had not been conquered or ceded as in uh, given away in a treaty. So the Merriam people weren't contesting that the land had been settled under European colonisation, but they were contesting that that colonisation had resulted in a complete uh, dispossession of their ownership of land. So the Merriam people were arguing that the Crown did not obtain absolute ownership because the land had not been terra nullius in the first place and the Merriam people had retained their ownership which is what we now know as a form of native title. In our discussion of Mabo number two, we're going to focus on the decision of Justice Brennan. And that's because that decision by Justice Brennan is the most representative of the scope of the majority. Remember the High Court uh, when it sits as a full bench of judges, there are seven justices. And in the Mabo number two case, the, uh, the majority was six to one. So that means that there were six justices who um, found in favour of the Merriam people, and there was one who didn't. Now, Justice Brennan's judgment is the judgment that is most representative of those uh, of the reasoning of the six judges who found in favour of the Merriam people. So that's why we're going to take a specific look at that. So Justice Brennan provides us with a comprehensive review of the history of, of uh, European contact with the Merriam people and also draws on historical records of the system of land ownership and property rights that were operated by the Merriam people. Justice Brennan reviewed the dominant legal argument for Crown ownership of the Mer Island and found it to be 
an unjust part of Australian common law. And in the words of Justice Brennan, the common law took from an in Indigenous inhabitants any right to occupy their traditional land. It deprived Indigenous people of the religious, cultural and economic sustenance which the land provides. It vested the land in control of imperial authorities without compensation. And in doing so, it made Indigenous inhabitants intruders in their own lands. And having made those observations, Justice Brennan points out that by any civilised standard, such a law is unjust and its claim to be part of the common law to be applied in contemporary Australia must be questioned. So Justice Brennan here sets up a strong foundation for then going on to tear apart the notion of terra nullius and how the common law can recognise native title rights for Indigenous peoples. And in doing so, uh, Justice Brennan lays out an extensive basis for changing the precedent, which was, in this case, terra nullius. So talking a little bit more about precedent, we just have to remember that the High Court of Australia is not free to adopt rules that accord with contemporary notions of justice and human rights if their adoption would fracture the skeleton of principle which gives the body of law its shape and internal consistency. And that's a point that Justin, Justice Brennan made. What does that mean? Well, it means that the court is not just free to make up new rules if those rules are going to shatter the principles that sit at the heart of law and shape what the law is doing. Justice Brennan points out that Australian law is both a historical successor of and an organic development from the law of England. But he also makes the point that it's not a prisoner of this history, that the Australian common law is no longer bound by decisions of courts in the hierarchy of an empire that was primarily concerned with the development of its colonies. So here Justice Brennan's making the point that the High Court of Australia is now the pinnacle court of the country, that uh, since the imperial court structure had um, had disappeared, uh, that the High Court was no longer bound by decisions of the Privy Council or the House of Lords in Britain. That yes, it has to follow precedent, but if that precedent is not a just one in the sense of the contemporary Australian common law, then the High Court as the pinnacle of the Australian legal system is in a position to be able to do something about that. And so Justice Brennan goes on to observe that no case can command an unquestioning adherence if the rule it expresses seriously offends the values of justice 
and human rights, and especially the notion of equality before the law. He then raises the question of whether a rule of the common law should be maintained and applied when it seriously offends the contemporary values and aspirations of the Australian legal system. In answering this question, it's necessary to assess whether the particular rule is an essential doctrine that cannot be disposed with, and if the rule were to be overturned, would that cause a disturbance that would be disproportionate to the benefit that was provided? So again, we're talking here about terra nullius. Should the common law rule of terra nullius be maintained and applied when it seriously offends contemporary values? This was the question that Justice Brennan, Brennan was posing. And in answering that, he was saying, well, when we're fight, trying to find the answer to that question, we need to work out whether that particular rule, that is terra nullius, is an essential doctrine that needs to be maintained in Australian common law, and that if the finding was that terra nullius should be overturned, would that cause such a disturbance that was going to be completely disproportionate to the benefit of overturning terra nullius. So we have a situation where the High Court of Australia is taking a very close look at, at terra nullius as a principle uh, that has been the precedent for uh, land title across the Australian landmass. Now it is easier for the High Court to do this because it is the highest court that we have. Um, as, as was just observed though, that doesn't mean that it can just make rules at will. It needs to have a justified dismissal of any previous authority or to make a clear distinction between the facts of an apparently similar case. So that there, are, there are ways that the law can be used to make changes. Of course, it's easier to make changes if the majority of justices share the view, and that's what happened in this case. Uh, and if the change is also supported by another decision. So where can we go with that? What other decisions might the court draw on which could suggest that terra nullius is a problem? We've already identified that there was a case in 1979. Um, Justice Murphy in Coe and the Commonwealth made the observation that terra nullius was a convenient falsehood to justify the taking of land. But that wasn't enough. Justice Brennan needed to draw on, uh, on more, um, more of a solid foundation. And how he did that was to draw on the International Court of Justice. In 1975, the International Court of Justice had given an advisory opinion on the Western Sahara. What had happened in that case was that 
the notion of terra nullius was employed um, to justify conquest and colonization. So the International Court of Justice found that the concept of terra nullius had been employed in the Western Sahara. It had been used there to justify conquest and colonization. It condemned the concept and unanimously found uh, that the Western Sahara at the time of its colonization by Spain in 1884 was not terra So this gave a basis then from the International Court that terra was a fiction where the rights and interests of indigenous peoples were treated as being non-existent and that were justified by a policy that had no place in contemporary law and in particular in the contemporary law of Australia. Essentially, terra nullius was an unjust and discriminatory doctrine that could no longer be accepted. But what was the alternative? So if terra nullius was unjust and discriminatory, if it can be no longer accepted by the Australian common law, what is the alternative? We have a whole system of land title that's founded on the notion of terra nullius. So where do we go next? What are the choices that we need to make? So in the, in the findings of Marbo number two, some key points that relate to this question are that at colonization the crown had obtained the right to the territory but not to all property so this is a key distinction there's a distinction being made with the crown obtaining sovereignty over land but not obtaining the right to all property And in a sense, this is something that the Merriam people were not disputing. So the Merriam people were not disputing the sovereignty of the Crown. What they were disputing was that the Crown had, um, had obtained a full beneficial ownership of the property on Mer Island. So the court agreed that the Crown had obtained sovereignty but it had not obtained absolute ownership of land. Particularly when the land was already occupied, it remained the property of the occupants through this concept of native title, that there were pre-existing property rights, that those property rights remained with the Indigenous people. Now it is possible for the Crown to extinguish prior property rights, but the Crown has to do that by deliberate act. Only by deliberate act can the Crown change property rights. Now this could be by the particular resumption of land by the Crown and then granting it to someone else with compensation being paid to the original owner. So this is not what happened on Mer Island. Yes, there was colonisation, 
Yes, the Crown took sovereignty of Murrow Island, but it had not deliberately resumed the land, taken the title for itself, and then granted that to someone else. So there was scope now for a new, new, new kind of title to land that was anchored within the legal system, that there was this opportunity for the High Court to consider that, yes, the Crown had taken sovereignty of Mer Island, but that it had, it had not undertaken to deliberately resume the property rights. And because of that, there was scope to consider that property rights had pre-existed and that if property rights had pre-existed, had they then survived? So this was placing the opportunity for some sort of Indigenous property rights within the context of the common law legal system.